Welcome to Stairway to ATJ, the podcast where we talk about all things access to justice, hosted by the Colorado Bar Association. We see access to justice as encompassing all efforts to provide people the opportunity to use the justice system when they are in need of a legal remedy. Hi, I'm Anthony Pereira and I work with Metro Volunteer Lawyers. It is the pro bono arm of the Denver Bar Association in association with the Adams Broomfield, Douglas Elbert, and First JD Bar Associations. And I'm Mia Kotnick, the Access to Justice Program Manager for the Colorado Bar Association. And I work with the CBA's Federal Pro Se Clinic, assisting unrepresented litigants in the U.S. District Court for the District of Colorado. This episode of Stairway to HJ is going to cover virtual access to justice. We're going to have Jenny Weary from Alpine Legal Services in our pro bono corner spotlight. We will feature interviews with Sarah Price from Fraser Able Law, as well as Jennifer Levin from Disability Law Colorado. It will also have our Eye on ATJ news section, where we discuss access justice news and hot topics from Colorado and the rest of the world. Let's hear from Jenny Weary with Alpine Legal Services in the Pro Bono Corner. The Pro Bono Corner gives us a chance to hear about pro bono opportunities and programs addressing access to justice issues from every corner of the state. If you would like to be featured in the Pro Bono Corner, please email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. Jenny, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, yes, thanks for having me. I'm Jenny Wary. I am the Executive Director of Alpine Legal Services. And Jenny, what is Alpine Legal Services? So Alpine Legal Services is free civil legal aid from Parachute to Aspen, Colorado. And we um, offer free civil legal aid to our community, mostly for the most vulnerable members of our community, um, crime victims, victims of domestic abuse, and uh, older adults, 60 and older, uh, as, well as, uh, as well as children who have been victims of domestic abuse. Uh, we also offer um, free programs. We participate in Family Law Resource Day with our local Access to Justice Committee, and uh, Senior Law Day is, is something we offer in partnership with senior services uh, organizations in our community. Um, and we also employ the long-term care ombudsman or the advocate who uh, advocates for long-term care residents in Garfield County. Uh, we also offer Ask a Lawyer weekly evening hotline from 5 to 7 p.m. every Wednesday evening. And right now we're offering mediation to our community in partnership with Mountain Voices Project and Carbondale Emergency Task Force um, to uh, help um, landlords and tenants um, engage in dialogue and try to find solutions for housing disputes caused by COVID-19 right now. And Jenny, can you share a success story about what Alpine Legal Services has done? Yeah, the most recent success story has really been our Ask Alert hotline. We were able to pretty seamlessly pivot from the libraries in our region to a, a, a phone hotline. Uh, we set that up, um, I think early April we had it going, and we received a great response from our private bar associations, the Ninth Judicial District Bar Association and the Pitkin County Bar Association, both brought us 22 volunteers, which was unprecedented for the Ask a Lawyer um, hotline. And so we've seen amazing support from our private bar and the pro bono attorneys who have helped us with that hotline have been really invaluable in keeping it going. 
So Jenny, how would a volunteer get involved with Alpine Legal Services? Well, they can just email me. Uh, my email is jennifer at alpinelegalservices.org. And we would love to hear from you. Our need right now is especially to cover our Spanish hotline. We have coverage for the English hotline. Like I said, we've been um, really um, pleased to see the level of support from our private bar association. But in our area, we have not um, had uh, a Spanish speaking volunteer um, that's been able to help in, with the Spanish line. So our staff is covering that. And since we have such a relatively small population, conflict of interest is sometimes an issue. Uh, and so we would prefer not to have staff covering the Ask a Lawyer hotline. So if anyone who's listening is, is bilingual, is able to answer the um, Spanish hotline, uh, speak Spanish fluently, and is licensed in Colorado, uh, and is able to give advice, we would love to hear from you. Um, like I said, jennifer at alpinelegalservices.org. Uh, it's only two hours a week, um, Wednesday evenings from five to seven. Um, and of course, if we were to receive a couple of volunteers, then the, the, it, we could you know, share the love, so to speak, and uh, having multiple volunteers help with this. But it's from five to 7 p.m. It's very easy to sign up. It's as easy as downloading an app to receive calls uh, and you can do it from anywhere you are in the world. So um, we would love to hear from any Spanish speaking pro bono uh, or any Spanish speaking attorneys uh, licensed in Colorado who can um, give us some pro bono help with our Spanish Ask a Lawyer hotline. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thanks. During this podcast, we are going to be focusing on virtual access to justice. This topic is particularly appropriate during these times uh, with the coronavirus so widespread and so many unknowns about when a return to normalcy will take place. We as a legal profession are at a point where we're being forced to adapt, be that having uh, court hearings by WebEx or by phone or meeting with clients remotely. The profession was likely trending in this way before COVID, but the virus has definitely become the catalyst that's propelling us into the future. Now, while some practitioners are meeting with clients virtually and having virtual hearings, sending and signing documents remotely as well, uh, other Coloradans are not um, getting those services. Some Coloradans do not have access to technology, high-speed internet, or reluctant to adopt new technology that is driving the virtual legal work. A lack of access to the tools necessary to engage in virtual legal work can disproportionately affect individuals experiencing poverty, living in rural communities, and individuals who are, in, who are elderly or disabled. Before we begin this conversation, we are so excited to welcome Sarah Price and Jennifer Levin. Now I'm gonna turn it over to our guests so that they can tell you a little bit about themselves. Sarah, take it away. Good morning, Anthony and Mia. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Sarah Price. I am an attorney with Fraser Able Law. Um, we serve as the public administrator's office for the first judicial district, which is Jefferson County and Gilpin County. Um, we practice estate law, probate administration, we do special needs planning, elder law, public benefits, guardianships, conservatorships, um, and a lot of fiduciary administration. 
Um, you can find our website at uh, fa legal.com. Um, and um, I know that you folks asked if there's anything else I wanted to share. And I think what I just want to say is I want to encourage everybody to get out there and vote this year. Um, if you're not registered, registering to vote is really easy. You can find information about registering to vote or about the local or federal elections at votesaveamerica.com. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I know Sarah from her work with Metro Volunteer Lawyers. Uh, she volunteers regularly with us, um, taking full referral cases, as well as at our power of attorney clinic. Um, so I know she does a lot of pro bono work um, as well. Um, we also have with us Jennifer Levin. Um, Jennifer, go ahead and introduce yourself. Thank you, Anthony um, and Mia for having me here. I'm Jennifer Levin. I'm a senior attorney at Disability Law Colorado which is our state's protection and advocacy organization. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I guess just a little bit more about me, the reason I was um, interested in working at Disability Law Colorado is because when my son was three years old, he was diagnosed with autism. And I started getting, um, I guess, I didn't want to be introduced to this area of law, but I did get introduced to the law that protects children in schools that have disabilities, mm -hmm. um, the individual, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And so um, I ended up actually becoming an Equal Justice Works Fellow for the organization. And I've been here about a little over 10 years, and now I'm the education team leader and also the vote program coordinator. So the interesting combo of duties here, but I love doing both of them. And we just like, we love to make systemic change here, working with our collaborators throughout the state. Um, so it's a, it's a great, a great job. Very passionate about it. Yeah. It sounds like a slow process, but a very rewarding one. All right. So our first question is actually going to be for both of you. What does access to justice mean to you? Well, I think the, you know, the big, um, umbrella of access to justice is just any kind of efforts that help the legal system um, deliver outcomes to folks that are fair and um, just irrespective of socioeconomic status. Um, I think more specifically, it involves just legal assistance for people who can't afford lawyers and providing more access to courts. Um, so promoting accessibility, you know, eliminating barriers that prevent people from understanding or accessing their rights, um, and ensuring fairness, just making sure that people who are involved in the legal system can get fair outcomes, um, even though they might face financial or other disadvantages. Yeah, I think that's a very, um, good and comprehensive, uh, definition of what access to justice is all about. Um, Jennifer, what does access to justice mean to you? So I guess I'll be a little more like specific about our clients that we work with. So we just work with people with disabilities that are experiencing civil rights um, discrimination based on their disability. And so I would say for us, it's basically making sure we can provide accommodations 
to the jail, whether it's physical barriers that are preventing people from entering in the courthouse or um, understanding what is being said because they need ASL interpreters, or it could be they just need supports throughout the process, maybe having an advocate from our organization or an attorney from our organization assist them in filing complaints um, or working with an adversary. What are you working on right now that promotes access to justice? Jennifer, let's start with you this time. So the first thing that comes to mind is, of course, what I'm doing in my voting program. Um, One of the big issues that we have been concerned with this year because of COVID um, are people, residents in long-term care facilities having access to our, our election process. One of the concerns is, will they allow election workers into the facilities? Right now, they're not allowing a lot of people into these facilities and it's been very damaging, I think, to the residents. And I'm, I know that they're loved ones are complaining, the people that work in the facilities have been complaining about the lack of access that they have to their community. And so I'm working with the Secretary of State's office and our state and local ombudsman to get the word out that election workers are essential workers and they should not be barred from coming into nursing homes and delivering ballots and assisting people with filling out their ballots. We just want to make sure that that message gets through to everyone so we don't actually have a problem when it's two weeks prior to election day. Um, So we're going to send not only a letter with some facts, a fact sheet along with it, we have have a PowerPoint that we're going to put up on our website that talks about the issue so that people just have an awareness. Um, And like I said, the Secretary of State's office is going to help get that message out as well. At least I'm hopeful they will. We're working on that. But we're going to send all these um, letters and fact sheets out to every facility in the state. It's like, I think, close to 700 facilities. So that will help um, eliminate any barrier to that process. Um, And Sarah, over to you. What are you working on right now that promotes access to justice? Yeah. So as Anthony mentioned, um, I do volunteer with Metro Volunteers um, Power of Attorney program. Um, That program, unfortunately, has been somewhat curtailed because of the pandemic. Um, But um, we are doing some of the work remotely for that clinic. Um, Also through MVL, I take on full referrals for clients who just can't afford to hire an attorney. Um, I also, I serve as court-appointed counsel and guardian ad litem um, through appointments from the Denver Probate Court for respondents who are the subject of guardianship and conservative proceedings that are either objecting to the proceeding or if it's an emergency appointment, I get appointed to help these folks and you know, in a lot of cases, they're indigent, so um, payment comes from the state of Colorado. Um, in addition, I serve as a guardian ad litem for um, disabled individuals and minors who are involved in protection order cases through the Denver County Court. Um, and I'm appointed by the county court in those cases if the court believes that 
a person, you know, cannot understand the nature of the proceedings because they might be elderly or disabled or because they're a minor. Um, and by virtue of being a minor, they lack capacity. Um, and I think that's mostly it, is the court appointments and then the volunteer work through Metro Volunteer Lawyers. I like how you say that that's mostly it, as if you didn't list 10 different things that you did. <laughs> I love also hearing about uh, some of the parallels between the work the two of you are doing um, while working in totally different um, domains. Right. Um, so Jennifer, if we could hop into a little bit more um, about the specifics of what you do, could we start by talking about Disability Law Colorado? Tell us what, um, that or what your organization does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are a protection and advocacy organization. Every state has one. Um, they came into being in a, a very, I would say, shocking way. Back in the 70s, Geraldo Rivera did an expose on a facility in New York called Willowbrook. Mm -hmm. Home for mostly children, but some adults that had sig significant disabilities, he went in with cameras and caught on film some horrendous conditions. These people were laying around in their own excrement. They were chained to beds. They were mal- It was really horrible. That started a movement amongst people who cared about people with disabilities. Um, what we came out of that at, through some legislation that was passed. So they passed several statutes that created the PNA system. And it gave the PNA system the authority and access to investigate facilities like that, anything run by the state. So we were able to, we are now able to investigate situations like that in the hopes that that would never happen again. And so we've been around since the 70s, as well as any other, most other PNAs across the country um, and we'll do investigations we do um, private representation of individuals we do legislation trainings um, and anything if, it, if it's a systemic issue we can file complaints as the PNA on behalf of people with disabilities so we have quite a broad scope of um, responsibilities and duties that we can do. And we represent anyone with a disability throughout the state of Colorado who has um, a, an issue related to discrimination due to their disability. Okay. What a fascinating history. And it seems like you guys uh, have a very broad scope in the work you do. But let's turn now to um, kind of the theme of our podcast today. So how has COVID and this new virtual world we're finding ourselves in affecting the work um, you're doing at Disability Law Colorado? So like everyone else, I've been on a lot of Zoom meetings. <laughs> so we've just been making that work for our clients. But we are considered critical employees, so we can go in person if we want to, um, such as like go into a facility if we needed to. And I did go down the other day to the state mental hospital to do a training on voting rights for the people that live in that facility. Um, but mostly it's just been on virtual online Zoom meetings, like my, my clients that have IEP meetings coming up, which is yep. a 
visualized education program for students you know have special needs in school we're just we just all gather on zoom we have all the, the school district team part of the team on there i'm on there and the parents are on there and it's been going pretty well so far so good <laughs> i don't know good good I'm glad to hear it um, so you, you t you're telling us so far so good. Have there been any hurdles um, that you encountered? I know March was a time everyone was scrambling um, and were there issues that <laughs> seemed particularly difficult um, at first? I would say for me, um, the hurdles are right now when school's back in session, everybody's confused. Um, we've been getting calls from parents about how should this work from my child who needs all these accommodations and they are supposed to be getting occupational therapy or speech therapy and um, or they need a para to help guide them through their learning day you know so <laughs> it's very difficult trying to explain to parents what that should look like and I'm really beefing up the technical assistance that I give people um, so that they can self-advocate because it's so individualized it's sure. not it shouldn't be the same for each kid, even though I know the school just every district has its own plan. They do need to focus on individualizing those plans for children with special needs for sure. And I'd like for parents to know that so that they can go to their team and make sure that that's happening. But it's been a challenge because it's hard. Not everybody knows about our organization and knows where to get that kind of information. Sure. So you told us earlier, your two focuses are education and voting, and we've, we've heard a little bit about both, but um, can you tell us more about, well, I know kids are going back to school, so what's coming up in the education realm? So it's, wow, that's hard to answer. Good question. <laughs> so confusing, as I was going to say, just confusion, just tend to be confused. Um, but like I said, there is some good information out there for parents on the, uh, the Colorado Department of Education's website. Um, and I am relying very heavily on that for parents to, to take to their IEP teams and their school districts and use it to say, hey, this needs to look individualized. Mm -hmm. Also letting parents know, I mean, of course, we're in a pandemic, so you're not going to get what you used to get right now. This is temporary. So in a temporary situation, you've got to understand, you've got to have, you've got to make some compromise. Mm -hmm. um, and just don't expect what you would normally receive, what's called a FAPE, the free appropriate public education you are entitled to under the IEP but you're just gonna get what they can do to the greatest extent possible right now. Um, and have and have your, and just understand your, your rights aren't waived. The IDEA is still there. Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act is still there. You haven't waived, no one's waiving your rights, but, but in the meantime, be patient, mm -hmm. but empowered at the same time. You do have rights. Don't give up on that, that but it, also, let's get through this pandemic. <laughs> it sounds like you're balancing between managing expectation and providing hope as well. Um, right, right. I know, but it's hard. I mean, I'm not, I'm a little concerned about the equity issue here and kids that are not able to access internet or um, can't have a higher private tutor to keep them going through the you know meeting academic goals 
kids with or without special education needs. I think that's going to create an a equity, a gap. So there's going to be an equity issue that I'm very, very worried about. I don't want to be all doom and gloom here, but it's going to be something I think we should all be thinking about for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's shift over to your work um, regarding voting. Um, what's going on? This is definitely the season to be um, focused on voting. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely an, a, a, just a small election coming up here. Right. <laughs> um, well, we are doing quite a bit with voting, even though we can't do a lot in person. I've been definitely getting calls to do trainings. So I do voting rights trainings for people with disabilities because there are several federal laws out there that protect people with disabilities in different in different aspects. Some are, you know, some mention, you know, they should everyone should have the right to be able to vote independently and privately, which can be difficult for a person with a disability, depending on the disability. Um, but we've been doing the Zoom trainings. And and like I said, I did do an in-person training at the state mental health hospital down in Pueblo the other day, but mostly it's been through Zoom, and I think it's so, so far been pretty effective. We are putting out, we're working with our Just Vote Election Protection Team, which consists of the Colorado Lawyers Committee, Common Cause, Mi Familia Vota, and the League of Women Voters, and we do a call center every year, opening up two weeks before Election Day, since our, our polling centers open up that soon. And that will be up and running for people to call in with any questions. And you can go to justvotecolorado.org for more information about that. It also will list out where your voting service and polling center is and your where your mail ballot drop boxes are, which is pretty cool. So you can figure out where to go for that. Um, the state, the Secretary of State's office has implemented some new rules, some temporary rules to make sure that our voting service and polling centers are safe during COVID, which is really so important for people with certain types of disabilities that need an accessible machine. So other states, I think, have been kind of eliminating that option, right, which has wow. been and so in Colorado, I'm very proud to say our Secretary of State did not do that. Instead, they passed those temporary rules. They're going to make sure there's cleaning processes in place, there's social distancing in place, and they're, they're going to make sure that the, um, the places aren't going to be too crowded by spacing out people when they can come in. So I think that's going to help keep them up and running and so that people who need to use them can use them. We also uh, offer an online ballot delivery system, and this is new. This is a law that passed in 2019 for people with disabilities. It's old for people who are military and overseas, so they've been able to receive an online ballot for years, but no one else could. But in 2019, a law passed that now enables people who have a disability that's covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is pretty broad, um, can apply to do receive their ballot online. So they can get it online, use their assistive technology, such as a reader, to vote that ballot on their screen. Wow. They have to print the ballot out. So they do have to have access to a printer um, and put it in a, whether 
a regular envelope or the envelope you would automatically have received anyway from your clerk with your ballot in it, you can use either one of those envelopes to put it back in the mail to the clerk's office. But I think that's gonna be really important for people who don't wanna go in person to use a machine um, and would like to be able to, to vote in the safety of their own home and vote independently as well. I think it actually goes beyond that too because it helps people with disabilities that might not otherwise be able to vote easily at least um, because they could do it with their own software, their own protections and stuff that they set up for their everyday life. I, I, absolutely. And that's why the fact that we passed that bill just in time, right? Right. But it, it was gr a great sign that we didn't we don't have to fight a lot here in this state to make things accessible in our election process in other states they've had to do litigation to get this option for people particularly those who have visual impairments um, but when you have an all-male ballot system in place there's a, a slight inequity there for people who need to vote on a, a on an accessible machine they don't have the ability to vote a mail ballot because they can't do it independently or privately, right? They have to go use a machine. But unlike their non-disabled peers, they um, don't get to vote in the comfort of their own home, which is I, me and quite, quite a few other people who represent people with disabilities feel like that's a violation of our, the ADA, Title II, that promises equal access to what your non-disabled peers have access to, right? So litigation has been, um, successfully done in other states. Fortunately, we did not have to do it here because we went ahead and passed the legislation. So we kind of bypassed that. But um, yeah, it's just a great thing to have for people to be able to do so that they can do that in their own home. Thank you so much for all that great insight. Your focus on equity is a thread that definitely comes through um, all of the work you're doing. And while we're on an up note, can you share a story about the impact your work has had um, on access to justice in the virtual world? Yeah, actually, um, there we did have a, a case with one of my clients in a school district up north. And the, um, we went ahead and filed a state complaint to get to see what would happen. We weren't sure because they will do an investigation into the situation and it's not in your hands anymore, right? Um, and this was during COVID and we felt like the complaint officer wrote a great decision that would really benefit not only our client, but the entire district. So the systemic impact would happen that we like to see happen here. So we were able to get the district to be audited for the violations that the, the officer had seen happening based on what happened to our client. So now the district has to go through an audit, auditing process of all students, not just students with disabilities, but all students going through the disciplinary process. So we felt like the fact that the state saw that as a problem and wants to make sure that's not happening to other students as well was a huge success um, and, and hopefully will not happen again. And before we let you go, um, is would you like to provide your contact information if anyone wants to reach out and find out more about Disability Law Colorado? Oh, absolutely. Um, so our number here is 303-722-0300. 
And again, my name is Jennifer Levin. So if you want to email me, you can always email me at jlevin, J-L-E-V-I-N, at disabilitylawco.org. So yeah, um, anytime, give me a call. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so You're much, welcome. Jennifer. All right. So we're going to move over and start talking with um, Sarah. Um, as I said, um, Sarah is a regular volunteer, um, but in addition to all the pro bono work and, and all the guardian ad litem work she does, she does um, practice law for a profession as well. Um, so Sarah, how has COVID affected your work? Um, well, similarly to Jennifer, uh, there's been a lot of Zoom meetings. Um, I've become quite proficient at Zoom, Microsoft Teams, WebEx, you know, all of those platforms. But, um, you know, we in our office, we are keeping the office staffed at half capacity. So we all rotate days. Um, I'm in the office essentially two days a week. Um, we make sure that we have at least one lawyer and one paralegal in the office every day. Um, and then the rest of the time I get to work from home. Um, certainly it has come with challenges because, you know, with the nature of our practice, we work with a lot of um, elderly clients who are not as proficient with email and, you know, video conferencing. So um, that it has been a challenge, certainly. And uh, these these clients, how are you meeting them? Are you doing it in the office, in um, through Zoom? Like, how are you? Um, um, it really depends on the client's comfort level. So we're fortunate enough to have a very large conference room where we can have meetings with another person or two in there and maintain a socially distant you know, um, uh, space. But if the client isn't comfortable then um, coming into the office then, and they can't do video conferencing, we're just meeting over the telephone. Um, I, <laughs> I have a client that I've been representing um, since probably end of March in a contested guardianship and conservatorship, and I haven't yet been able to meet her face to face because she is immunocompromised. So it's, it's different, but yeah, it really just depends on the client, whatever their comfort level is, then that's what we'll do. Um, you know, I do have clients that are in nursing homes and folks that I get appointed to represent through the Denver probate court, where I do have to go into the nursing home and meet with them there. Um, and fortunately, because we are essential workers, um, you know, we are able to go in if, you know, we maintain the safety protocol. Um, but, you know, in some of these cases, the clients have um, cognitive impairments. And there have been some cases where clients have just even refused to wear a mask. Um, and so all you can really do is try and maintain your six feet distance, you know, wear your mask, constantly use hand sanitizer, um, and just be as careful as you can. Um, I'm also um, getting tested pretty regularly because of um, the population that we work with. And fortunately, um, testing right now is free. Um, it's pretty quick. So, you know, if there's ever a question, you know, I'll just go down to the Pepsi Center, you do a drive-through testing and it takes, you know, about five minutes, so. Yeah, keeping yourself safe and keeping your clients safe as well. 
um, have you had any experience um, in addition to with your clients, but also with the courts? Have you had any hearings um, since COVID hit? Yeah, I haven't had any in-person hearings. So the Denver Probate Court is starting to hold in-person hearings again. Um, so in that case, if you have a hearing scheduled, you can ask the court to appear via WebEx and they pretty quickly grant it. Um, but, you know, they are holding in-person hearings. Um, my hearings have been by telephone or by WebEx uh, mostly. So, and that, you know, obviously comes with its challenges as well. <laughs> are they taking longer or yeah, how are they going? I think they're definitely taking longer. Um, and, you know, there's inevitably techn technological issues, you know, feedback um, issues with folks, you know, not muting or unmuting when they shouldn't. Um, and then when you're using the WebEx platform, if you're in a meeting room, you know, and your hearing is scheduled from, you know, 10 to 11, but if you're going long, then the folks that are scheduled at 11 start coming into the meeting in the middle of your hearing. So that's been interesting as well. Jennifer, while we still have you, have you had any hearings, virtual or otherwise? <laughs> Uh, no, we did have a mediation that went that was virtual and like Sarah was saying sometimes, you know, some clients don't want to do that on their own. Right. So we had our client come in um, to sit with me in the office while we the mediator was virtual. The district was virtual. Um, it was kind of weird. So I remember there was a couple of times the mediator was like, so can I just talk to you alone, Jennifer, and you have your clients going in another room. So I was like escorting my clients down to the con another conference room, like, okay, I why she's doing this. <laughs> so you can, I'll just take you here and I'll go back into the, where the computer is. It was like really bizarre, but it worked. It didn't work out. We ended up not meeting, not settling. So <laughs> maybe that's maybe because it was virtual. I don't know. <laughs> And Sarah, have you had any mediations or any um, complications with mediations? Yeah, I've had mediations and complications with mediations. Um, I, you know, I it's nice to have the convenience, but in my experience, it takes so much longer. You know, they just really do. And without, you know, the mediator there, you know, I, I don't, I think in some cases it's not as effective. Um, and then in my last mediation, there were so many technical issues where our connection kept on getting dropped and we were constantly trying to reconnect and then trying to do it via phone while the computers were reconnecting. And it, it yeah, it took twice as long as it probably should have just because of that. We're going to transition to talking about some remote notarizations. Um, and one of the reasons why we invite you to join us today is because we know your practice involves notarizing documents, um, whether that's estate planning documents or the like. Um, and right now in response to COVID, they're allowing remote notarizations under emergency rule five of the notary program rules. Um, I believe that was adopted on March 30th, 2020. And um, it is an emergency rule, but are you familiar with this rule or um, some of the elements that it might entail? Yeah. Um, so rule five, um, you know, 
we're certainly glad that the state took action, but it, it has been problematic. Um, and, you know, it was passed to implement the executive order. I think it was 2020-19, um, but it really only addresses remote notarization, not remote witnessing. Um, so that's been one of its limitations. And then, you know, the court, the Supreme Court, fortunately in response, um, adopted uh, Colorado Rule of Probate Procedure 91 and 92, so that there could be some consistency because, so Colorado is one of the only three states that allows a will to either be witnessed or notarized. Um, but typically, um, under the Colorado Probate Code, Section 502, um, or sorry, Section 504, um, we as attorneys typically will have a will both notarized and witness it and witness so it's a self-proved will and just to prevent any issues that might come up if the will ends up being probated in a different state um but rule five really didn't address what to do about the witness requirement um because under you know the requirements in 504 the witness has to be in the conscious presence of the testator so CRPP 91 and 92, those have, um, those have helped uh, eliminate that inconsistency between uh, Rule 5 and 504. Um, but at the same time, the rules contemplate that either the notary or the witness be a attorney or a staff member of the attorney's law office. So that creates some issues as well. Um, so, you know, best practice, we've just been having our staff um, do, I'll do the notarization and I'll have members of my staff be the witness. Um, and we'll try and do it in person and in a socially distanced manner, um, just because as a litigator, you to avoid any chance of future litigation over that document. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot of um, moving pieces when you're trying to um, get four people to sign a document. Or right. Well, it's uh, also important to remember, too, that CRPP 91 and CRPP 92, um, they're temporary. So, you know, um, we anticipate that there will be some new legislation passed to address this in the future. I know that a lot of states have passed laws regarding e-wills, electronic wills. So, you know, there's a lot coming up on the horizon too. So, um, you know, for, for a temporary solution, I think we're all doing pretty, pretty okay. Good. So can you share with us a success story about how your work has promoted access to justice in this virtual world? Um, well, I think just offering clients the access to technology and legal representation, you know, that they wouldn't otherwise have, um, you know, that that's very satisfying professionally <laughs> to be able to help folks like that. Um, I, I felt that that was a success story. That is a wonderful success story. Thank you. And Sarah, if people want to get in touch with you, how should they do that? Sure, yeah. Um, so I mentioned earlier, our website is uh, vfalegal.com. That's V as in Victor, F as in Frank, A as in Adam, and then the word legal.com. Um, 
anybody can email me anytime. My email address is my first name, Sarah, with no H, S-A-R-A, at vfalegal.com. And our phone number is 720-638-1465. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Jennifer, for joining us today to talk about virtual access to justice. Up next is Eyes on ATJ. This segment, we highlight the most important and enduring issues affecting access to justice in Colorado, the United States, and internationally. First, I'd like to talk to you about interest rates. While I know these low, low interest rates have many of you running to the bank to refinance, let's talk about what these interest rates mean for legal aid organizations. So Mia, how are interest rates related to legal aid organizations? Well, some of you might know that the interest on lawyers' pooled trust accounts in the U.S. is used to help fund civil justice organizations, including Colorado Legal Services and other legal aid like Alpine Legal Services. Yeah, so you're talking about IOLTA or the interest in uh, lawyer trust accounts. Exactly. And with interest rates down, this means this funding stream is also down. On average, nationally, legal aid organizations depend on trust account interest to make up 5%, 5% of their budgets. In this time of expanding need, legal, legal aid organizations cannot stand to lose income from this funding stream. Yeah, it's sad that the decrease in funding coincides with the increase in need for legal aid. Um, the National Association of IOLTA Programs are expecting their revenues to drop by as much as 75%. Um, this, looking at interest on um, lawyer trust accounts, kind of got me going down a rabbit hole and comparing uh, what we're going through now to the 2008 financial crisis. What'd you find? Um, for example, in 2007, during that recession, right before the recession, uh, Legal aid organizations received $371 million from IOLTA-funded um, programs. That dropped down to $124 million in 2009, and it was at its lowest in 2014 at $75 million. Well, we certainly don't know what the future holds, but here at Stairway to ATJ, we're going to keep our eye on this issue. So my news story is going to be another happy topic, um, and that's the impending eviction storm. LSC, or Legal Services Corporation, estimates that they would need $2.5 billion, that's a billion with a B, to address this impending eviction storm. Um, and that's assuming that each case costs about $500 to have um, represented. And Anthony, that's just the cost for residential evictions. When I go for my run every night, I seem to see more local and small businesses closing their doors for good. Yeah, I don't want to get into each state's response um, because it's so ever-changing. Um, by the time you listen to the podcast, it's probably going to be different. Um, but be on the lookout because in response to COVID um, and so much loss of income, um, each state has had to make a decision on whether or not to put on hold on evictions. And many did so temporarily, um, but a lot of those holds are temporary. So they're going to run out. Um, the time's going to happen and these evictions are going to be coming. Yikes, that's scary. So I have one other topic I'd like to discuss, um, legal deserts. What exactly is a uh, legal desert? So a legal desert is a large geographical area where residents have to travel far distances 
sometimes out of the county they live in, um, to find a lawyer. And this is even for routine matters like drafting a will or disputing a traffic violation. The ABA report measures the number of uh, measures the number of attorneys per thousand residents, and this is a good measure to get a rough idea of the scope of this issue. However, on closer examination of this issue, we see that it's super complex. Think about it: different residents need assistance um, on different legal issues, and no one attorney can be an expert in every area of the law as much as we might try to be. Yeah, and. On average as well, uh, you have to factor in that rural attorneys tend to be older. So as they retire, this problem is going to become worse and worse. Thank you for listening. Check out our other CBA podcast, Getting Legal With It by the CBA YLD and the Modern Law Revolution put on by the Modern Law Practice Initiative. If you have any questions, feel free to contact us. We could be reached at atjpodcast at cobar.org. Go ahead and send us an email if you have any ideas, or if you know someone, even yourself, that would be a good guest, you can let us know. I'm Mia. Keep climbing, stay cool, and come volunteer with us. And I'm Anthony Pereira. Be good. Be good.